Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hello, I'm Faye. And I'm James. I'm very excited for today's episode because we are featuring a brand that has, has really risen from Cambridge to become a world leader. I'm sure most of our listeners will be very familiar with Raspberry Pi. So this is going to be a great conversation. It certainly is. And we have Evan Upton, who's CEO and co-founder, joining us today. I usually bump into him at our local coffee shop or somewhere in the villages around where we live. Um, But today he's with us on Cambridge Tech Podcast. Hi, Evan. It's great to have you with us today. Good to be here. So, Eben, we've got lots to cover with you today, Um, so let's jump straight in. And if we can start at the very beginning, please, how did Raspberry Pi first come about? Oh, it's a long time ago now. I think it's 16 years ago that we first had the idea of something which would become Raspberry Pi. Um, I was a director of studies at St. John's College in Cambridge, and the job of the director of studies, obviously, is to organise undergraduate teaching in the subject. Uh, and also to go out and find new students, go find new undergraduates. And so you're, you're responsible for interviewing that sort of that horrible week at the start of December where you're responsible for interviewing all of your prospective undergraduates. Um, and it was a super, super depressing. That element of the job was super, super depressing because um, what we discovered, what I discovered was that there were, not, there were nothing like the number of people uh, interested in coming to Cambridge, which is obviously Cambridge is the best place in the world to study computer science. And there were really very few people who were interested in taking us up on the opportunity to come and do that. So really Raspberry Pi is a, it's a kind of an object that exists to try to get young people excited about computers. I got excited about computers when I was a kid because I had access to a programmable computer in my classroom, uh, BBC Micro, uh, another great Cambridge design computer, uh, in my classroom and later in my in my bedroom. Um, and, and really Raspberry Pi has always been, the kind of the core of the Raspberry Pi mission has always been about trying to recapitulate some of those values, I guess, uh, that those, 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 those machines had, but in a very modern sense, you're know, not building something which is self-consciously a retro object, uh, but something that has maybe an ethos about it, an ethos about um, general purpose computing and about control of the hardware that you own, uh, which, which kind of feels a little bit distressingly retro. I don't think that should be a retro thing, uh, but that ethos is certainly harking back to the 1980s. And I think there'll be a load of people listening to this that are remembering BBC Micro. I remember I did my first ever book quiz on a Commodore 64. But you're right, those things have disappeared and, and we're all in sealed consoles and it, it just takes, you know, that element away from it. Yeah, and, and you know, this is the Raspberry Pi hypothesis, right? You mentioned consoles. In the 1990s, probably the biggest change in terms of home computing in the 90s is that people who would previously have bought a Commodore 64 or a Spectrum maybe to play games on instead of buying Nintendos and Segas. Um, and these are these are devices that they're, they're, they're very powerful, but they are they're not general purpose computers. They're not program they're designed to not be programmable. Uh, their business model requires them to not be programmable. Uh, and that's probably, you know, if you think what are we trying to where do we think that this decline we saw a huge decline 
um, in the first decade of the century in the number of people applying to study computer science. And where do we think that came from? Well, we think it probably came from that transition 10 years earlier uh, from home computing to, to, to home games consoles. Really, Raspberry Pi is, is testing that hypothesis by reintroducing programmable computer hardware into children's lives and seeing whether the amount of interest increases. So, Ebden, like all good ideas, when you know now that your you know Raspberry Pi has been so successful, it seems like an obvious thing to do. Um, but you know, if you can go back to that original kind of uh, origin of the idea, because like a lot of good ideas, it really just bucked the trend. The PC market is, has always been dominated by the the bigger, faster, buy more processors, buy bigger graphics card kind of uh, arms race. So what led you to that idea that launching something that was probably no more powerful than those 80s computers was going to be a good idea? Oh, it's a lot more powerful than an 80s computer. It's about a thousand, even the, the first Raspberry Pi is about a thousand times as powerful as a BBC Micro. The idea that a cost-effective computer, cost-effective piece of technology, which has adequate performance, can out-compete a more expensive product that has more performance than is necessary. It's a, it's a fairly common one, right, in, in the sort of the theory of innovation. If you look at I mean, Clayton Christensen's Innovator's Dilemma book is, is all about this, right? The idea that you have that, that incumbents in a field tend to push performance because they compete with each other, right? How do they compete with each other? Well, people always prefer to compete with each other on features than they do on price. And so people tend to pack more and more and more features into a platform. This, this Red Queen's race can often generate performance levels which are far beyond what the majority of the customer base of the product actually requires. This is, it's a natural dynamic, but it creates a vulnerability for the incumbent because somebody else can come along with another technology which delivers adequate performance, del delivers sufficient performance, and does it in a much lower cost structure um, and hollow out the, uh, the, the, the existing business. And you can really see that's what Raspberry Pi has done you know, over the years. We have technological choices. We have made technological choices that mean that the, uh, the platform that we uh, produce has intrinsically better cost structure than the legacy traditional legacy PC, uh, and in, insofar as that provides something in the more recent generations Raspberry Pi four, insofar as that provides enough performance, it, it can be a very competitive alternative. Even though if you looked at it in relative terms, uh, you, oh well, this thing has only a tenth the performance of the PC. Well, that's fine if it, as long as the PC has more than ten times the performance that its users need, then that's not a handicap for the Raspberry Pi. I want to come back to the current tech in a minute. Can we go back to the first iterations? Because you know, I believe you started on Python. You, you know, you had all of these different evolutions. And what what I think is interesting for me is you you kept going. So you kept, it took you years to actually get to something. I think it was twenty twelve that you you sold your first unit. But you kept you know a load of startups, a load of these these emerging tech companies. They have so many iterations to go through, and I kind of want to get a feel of that if I can. It's interesting. Um, there was a six-year gap from the first intimations that we might like to do something like Raspberry Pi to the first shippable product. The first thing I built on VeraBoard out of a microcontroller in the spring of 2006, it's the first thing you could consider to be a Raspberry Pi, a little thing that try, that's cheap that's cheap and small and tries to be a PC, tries to be a computer. And now that really was something that, which had equivalent performance to those 1980s computers. 
And then there is this evolution, probably kind of two phases of evolution. The first evolution, I guess, away from microcontrollers and towards graphics processors. So the, the first thing that was ever called a Raspberry Pi, as opposed to the first thing that was a bit like a Raspberry Pi, the first thing that was ever called a Raspberry Pi, the thing that gave us our name was built around a, uh, uh, a graphics processor. Uh, and it was it had that very 1980s feel to it in that it booted, although it was very powerful, it booted into a programming language. It gave you a programming prompt, a Python programming prompt when you started up. So that was a kind of 2008 design. This thing that gives Raspberry Pi its name. You know, we picked the name back then. So Raspberry for fruit named computer companies, Pi because the product we held in our hand booted into Python. But then there's that further evolution uh, that we accomplished before we, before we launched our first product, which is where we decided, we discovered with both those earlier prototypes, that you were having to do a lot of work yourself. You know, you were pushing a lot of water uphill. You had to write your own, you know, your own text editor, your own graphics libraries, your own SD card driver, right? And what we realized was, you know, if we had a platform which had an ARM processor in it, then we could leverage all of that work that had been done to produce a version of Linux for ARM and run a standard operating system and provide people with something which felt much more modern. So you know, obviously by that time we fixed the name. So the name, that kind of Python era, that pure Python era survives into the modern day in the name of our product. But yeah, you know, Raspberry Pi is a story about sticking with it. And it's a story about, you know, the the some of the things you you have to do psychologically in order to continue to be interested in one thing. I mean, it seems remarkable to me that I was interested in one thing for six years without shipping. And of course, I wasn't continuously interested in it. I would get bored and wander off uh, and come back. The people you have around you, obviously, Liz, my wife, and co-founder, was very supportive in, in this. My parents actually were very supportive. You know, I told them about Raspberry Pi very early on. And then when I would get interested in something else, I'd go, to go and tell them about the cool new thing I was doing. And they'd say, well, hey, you know, that's great. But what about that Raspberry Pi thing? That sounded like a good thing. You should go do that. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's part of that story about unless you have superhuman reserves inside yourself, the ability to endure, the ability to do difficult things over long periods of time is often about who you surround yourself with. Yeah, absolutely. I totally, totally agree with that. Um, so, so am I right in saying that your first um, day of sales back in 2012, you, you broke a couple of your supplier systems because you sold so many? And, and so, so a is a is that true? And b, what was the celebration then with all the family and everyone who had supported you? Our first day of sales was fun because, of course, we launched on the 29th of February 2012, which has led to a smaller number of birthday parties than you would than you would expect. So we launched on the 29th of February for for esoteric reasons. There was a conference in Germany, um, embedded world, that we wanted to launch at, and that was just a convenient day. Uh, yeah, we we sold about a hundred thousand units. We we took down both our licensees' websites. We were, we were a licensing company, at least at the time. We were purely a licensing company. We designed Raspberry Pi, and we licensed the design to our, to our partners for production. And both their websites crashed during the day. But during the window of time, they were up. They managed to take 100,000 orders. And then we went to the Punter, the pub that's opposite the back of St. John's uh, on, on Northampton Street. And we, we, we had the back room. Pretty much everybody who had been involved in certainly in that last year that last push from may of 2011 through to february of 2012 pretty much everyone who'd been involved in that push showed up and we had a good evening you know we drank some beers and we we marveled at the uh, at what we'd done and we worried a little bit about how we were going to cross that last gap from having orders to having shippable volume but it was a, it was a good evening 
And, and well done, Evan, for getting the first mention of businesses done in the pub in Cambridge. It's very important. I mean, of course, you know, pubs are, you know, the famous fight between Chris Curry and Clive Sinclair in the uh, Baron of Beef, wasn't it? You know, a lot of uh, there's a lot of um, Cambridge computing history transacted uh, near a bar. <laughs> so in terms of use cases for creating, I guess, something quite unique and a bit of a category creator, it's a two part question. Did you spend a lot of time thinking about potential use cases for the Raspberry Pi? No, no. Okay. So if you didn't, then I guess one of the joys has has just been seeing the the weird and wonderful ways that people have started to use the technology. Do do you have some personal favorites? I mean, I, I, I thought people would write computer games on it. Because that's what I did with my BBC Micro, right? So I thought we were right computer games. And what we've what we've discovered is in the educational space, actually the physical aspects are much more important than the software aspects. So the fact that it has general purpose interfacing, um, it has general purpose I.O. Uh, on it, uh, and the camera and a display interface, the ability to talk to the physical world, uh, turns out to be much more important than its ability to purely to run software. Uh, otherwise, yeah, very little thought, certainly very little expectation that the thing would find a say the kind of the scale of industrial use that has it's extremely popular in industrial markets uh, and we didn't see that coming at all uh, favorite favorite use cases i mean well big use cases obviously digital signage is it's always been big um thin clients I see a lot of general purpose industrial automation there are some fun little toy examples one that i mentioned quite a lot is the cucumber sorter um there was a uh, an engineer in, in in japan whose parents run a cucumber farm and um, he, he, he trained a, and, and apparently when you have Japanese cucumbers, you want to separate them into 23 different buckets, depending on how straight the cucumber is, how green it is, how spiny it is, you know, some, some set of criteria. Um, and he trained a, 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 a TensorFlow neural network model to classify cucumbers and then a little system with a conveyor belt and paddles that would like push, nudge the cucumbers into different buckets, depending on what, um, on, on how they were classified. And it's it's a fun example, you know, right? Because you know, obviously, it is it is useful, useful to an actual human being, um, but it's kind of emblematic for us of that thing that a of the, the the general shape of an industrial use of Raspberry Pi, which is connecting together uh, sensors, whether they are you know a temperature sensor or whether that sensor is a camera or a microphone, some sort of local computation, the network and actuators to, to affect the, the, the physical world. So it's a kind of quite a nice capsule example of that. It's also just a, 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 an interesting example of how general purpose, you know, we're, we're massive partisans, I guess, for general purpose computing. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not obvious that general purpose computers have to exist in the world, but where they do exist, they provide people with a wonderful opportunity to kind of, uh, for kind of self-actualization. Uh, to to solve problems that they have, and that was kind of it's quite a nice that's quite a nice poster child. That uh, application is quite a nice poster child for the kind of anarchic, distributed, bottom up innovation uh, that we see people doing with Raspberry Pi. Evan, the one that I always like is the International Space Station, but I believe I believe there's an unlimited amount. You don't actually know how many Raspberry Pis are up there, do you? It's the funny thing with the ISS is we sent two up with Tim Peak uh, back in uh, I think that's 2015, isn't it? We've recently replaced those units, brought uh, down down mass those units, and replaced them with more modern units. And these these are used to support a program called Astro Pi, which gives children a chance to uh, run their code on the ISS. Uh, so that's kind of fun, um, as you say. We but we we don't generally know what else is up there, and that these are flight qual- this is flight qualified hardware. It's commercial, off the shelf, low cost flight qualified hardware. Um, and so when people want a controller for a payload, 
uh, very often they select a Raspberry Pi. Uh, and we really only, we either never find out uh, or we only find out after the payload has been downmassed. We are aware of examples of this, but I couldn't tell you today how many pies there are on the station. I think it's very unlikely that there are only two. The, 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 the counterpoint to that is I don't believe any pie has ever made it past low Earth orbit. And that's something that I would love. You know, I would love a pie to have made it into, 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 into interplanetary space uh, or, or even, high, even high Earth orbit. I don't believe they have yet. But they do operate very well in orbit, actually. They do turn out to be fairly resilient uh, to, uh, to radiation effects. Mm, interesting. I guess that helps with the industrial use cases as well. Yeah, although, although I mean, I th- would say at sea level, radiation-induced upsets are pretty uncommon, even in very advanced. You know, your mobile phone tends to not be resetting itself because it's um, because it's experienced a radiation event. But uh, yeah, it's they certainly are. You know, there's a there is a sense in which you know not having pushed right to the edge of the envelope. Uh, in terms of process node selection, is probably good news for industrial customers for a variety of reasons. So in terms of um, manufacturing, there's been some well-publicized challenges around availability and supply chain for you know most global tech companies, car manufacturers, etc. How have you weathered those storms? You know, how, how have you handled those issues? We've been very challenging. I mean, across our entire supplier base, some suppliers have done better than others, but across our entire supplier base, we've seen some pretty substantial disruptions caused by the, the global semiconductor shortage. Um, most of the um, components in the device are multi-source, uh, and therefore we at least have the opportunity to go to a couple of places to uh, to, to get alternative supply if we find ourselves constrained. Um, but, you know, there are always challenges. Yeah, we are, we will be down volume this year. So we sold 7 million Raspberry Pis in 2020, which was an un- obviously a strange year, but an unconstrained year. Last year, we were constrained by chip supply, sold 7 million units again in an environment where I might have expected to sell 8 or 9, maybe 9 or 10. This year, you know, we, we, we'll be down, on, we'll be fewer than 7 million units. So, you know, you've got a business where demand is very clearly increasing, and yet the ability to supply is decreasing. And that's very painful for us. And we, we've, we've coped with it by... Obviously, we've done our best on supply, but on the demand side, we've tended to prioritize our industrial customers because these are people who've invested on our platform and potentially, you know, when you say industrial customers, you don't necessarily mean multinationals. You can mean these little mom and pop organizations that might go bust uh, for, for want of for want of 50 Raspberry Pis, someone might go, go bust, right? So we tended to prioritize our industrial customers, our smaller industrial customers. That's painful for us, of course, because we see ourselves as being a very hobbyist-focused uh, business and not being able to prioritize hobbyists is, uh, is, is, is painful for us. On Cambridge Tech Podcast, we're trying to probe for slightly different pieces of information as well that other entrepreneurs or business leaders can get insights from. So we've got a few, I think, a few random questions for you now, if you're if you're ready and you're up for them. So you made a foray into retail. You've got a shop in Cambridge. You've had various pop-ups. And you've done this at a point in time where retail is under quite a lot of distress. So how did those decisions come about and how's it gone for you? How did they come about? I couldn't honestly tell you. I think we've talked about Gordon Hollingworth, um, one of our very earliest um, uh, people at Raspberry Pi, has been a fan of doing something in retail for a long time. And he and I kicked this around. I, I think the kind of concrete thing had its origin in the demise of Maplin, because um, when Maplin were going to go bankrupt, and they had a couple of stores, and if you remember, they had a couple of stores in Cambridge, they had one on St. Andrew Street or Regent Street, uh, one at the Beehive Centre. And Gordon talked about it for the thousandth time 
And I said something like, well, why don't you go down to Maplin and, and get, get the manager's business cup? Uh, and he, he came in late the next day and he'd been in the Starbucks on Regent Street opposite Maplin. And he waited for Maplin to open, went in and got the manager's business card, got Ollie's business card. And uh, he, Ollie came in to see us. And uh, and having somebody who actually knew what he was doing rather than having, yeah, the idea, well, yeah, why is it nice to have a shop? It's nice to have a shop for a variety of reasons. Obviously, it can be a business. It can make money. Uh, it's nice to have a physical environment that you can, say, take journalists to. Uh, you to have some sort of more interesting physical manifestation of the business than, than than just a cubicle farm, and of course it's it's a laboratory, right? So it's an environment to meet your users, and in particular, particularly for a company like us that has quite a large user base of of, of technically sophisticated users, uh, it's somewhere for them to come if they want to interact with us directly. But also, it tends to attract a different sort of customer. It tends to attract customers who are not yet not already sold on the Raspberry Pi proposition, people who have maybe heard of it, have some sort of idea what Raspberry Pi might be, but want to talk to somebody before they um, before they, before they jump in. Uh, and that's super valuable to us because it gets us, you know, getting outside your comfort zone as a business in terms of your customer base is very important. So those are the kind of justifications. Uh, Ollie came along, uh, knew what he was doing, and six months later we were we had a, we had the store, um, and it's been. I mean, it's fulfilled all those uh, all those goals, apart the possible exception of making money. Uh, but it's neither is it desperately. I, I think it uh, over time it's probably lost. A little tiny bit of money this year. This year will be profitable, particularly including the pop-ups, which are very profitable. But yeah, it's it's in terms of its in terms of being a usability laboratory, a user laboratory, and a venue for events and for meeting people. Um, it, it's definitely fulfilled those criteria um, a thousandfold. So my next question then, and then I'll, I will pass over to, to James, is actually quite a big one. It's the Raspberry Pi started really as a foundation. You've always had that ethos of educating the next generation. So why did you decide to do that right from the outset? Oh, we were trying to do some good in the world. Most of us who were involved in starting it have, have done regular commercial startups before. I think we kind of know what we're doing in that space. Uh, and it just felt like you're trying to accomplish some good and therefore uh, a charitable foundation is the natural structure. Yeah, it has been a controversial. We've shipped nearly 50 million Raspberry Pis and there aren't, there aren't a lot of charities that have sold 50 million computers. Um, so it does end up being a bit of an outlier in, in terms of the performance of the organization versus its structure. And I think it served us very well. It, it seems to give people permission to contribute their efforts to the organization. It gives people confidence if they engage with the Raspberry Pi Foundation, say, as a volunteer uh, in one of the after-school clubs, one of the code clubs or code dojos, that they are creating value for a, a not-for-profit entity rather than a profitable entity. I think that is important. That, that is very important to people. Yeah, so, so building on that theme, we when we speak to founders, you know, recruitment is always one of their top issues. Um, how does the foundation play into recruitment? Is that is that a major driver for attracting talent? And you know, how do you go about building the company and, and keeping competitive? I think for our organisation, for the trading organisation, the subsidiary that I that I run, so having founded the foundation, I now I now run run its trading subsidiary. Um, I think it is. Uh, I think that probably our value proposition to our employees is more about the quality of the working environment that we are we pay reasonably well um, but we provide a 
no-nonsense working environment with no bad people. So, so you know, this is, you know, most of us have worked in environments with a lot of nonsense uh, with bad people. And if you take those those two things away, then you can create an environment which is which is very attractive to people who, who want to get stuff done. Because actually, that's the thing with engineers, right? We like we like to accomplish things. We like to make things. And, and we don't want to have to put up with a lot of nonsense about people along the way. And we've got a pretty international audience for the podcast already. So can you give us a flavor of the, how the workforce is distributed around the world you know, in terms of like Cambridge versus other cities and countries around the world? So we're distributed around the office in Cambridge. That's the optimum level of distribution. People sit in different places in the same building. We have a publishing business, and most of the people who work for the publishing business are remote. We have a tiny number of remote engineering staff, but by and large, everyone's in the same place because that's how you do innovation. Interesting, because there's there's a lot of theory out there right now especially post pandemic in terms of you know building high growth technology companies and the value of working remotely in terms of a bigger talent pool and all of those kinds of advantages but it sounds like you're a firm believer then in co-locating people together to build that strong culture i honestly have absolutely no idea how you would do what we do how you do any high-tech innovation if you're not in the same room as each other i i, I mean i'm sure i'm just a Neanderthal or something, and, and clearly we can all go sit on the beach in our preferred country with our laptops and go and create value together, but it just seems like the most arrogant nonsense to me. Most of the, the value is in the relationships. I mean, you could imagine you could imagine doing that if you already had relationships. Uh, and and it kind of that's what we did, right? <laughs> you know, we had we had you know, a regular company uh, had a bunch of people who already had relationships. And then one day in March 2020, they said, right, okay, you don't get to sit in the same room as your friends for six months. How about it? And of course, that actually works reasonably well. And I think possibly it has has confused people as to whether that thing can work in a sustainable way uh, over the long run. Um, Because what you're doing is you're coasting. I believe you're coasting on existing capital that you've built up. You know, that capital would decay over time. Uh, and if you try to build capital anew with new people, particularly if you try to onboard large numbers of people in a short period of time, it, it just isn't going to work. Uh, it's a personal bias, but certainly, you know, we found early months of the pandemic, productivity definitely went up. Finishing stuff off is something which is very efficiently done at home, but deciding to do new stuff isn't effectively done remotely. And so we were very lucky that we were able to get people back in in the summer of 2020. And we we're very lucky that people here chose, most people here chose to come into the office pretty much full time from about June of 2021, once we'd all had a couple of jabs. We had a, a, a pool of work to do that sustained us until the summer of 2020. We were then able to come back in for a little bit, um, uh, build up a new pool of work to do, discharge that work during the second and third lockdowns, uh, and then get, get back to full-time in-person work um, after the vaccination campaign. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective and, and good good to get that alternative point of view. It, and I think it also matches the fact that you've, you've been very clear, very much in the same way that Steve Jobs was. You want to build things that you want to use. So actually having people thinking of those ideas in the same room is going, is going to help to, to maintain that. I love that characterization of Jobs, or characterization of Apple under Steve Jobs, which is that it was a company that built things that Steve Jobs wanted to use. There were a bunch of other people who wanted to use the things that Steve Jobs wanted to use. He happened to be representative of a particular class of person. 
And certainly that's the case here, that it's slightly less single-person driven model. But, you know, we build a Raspberry Pi. We build the things we want to use uh, as a team. Uh, we build the toys that we wish existed. And we look at, we, we think always, all the way back to Raspberry Pi. What tools, what toys would it be cool uh, to have? Can we make some of those? And then you make them and you discover, well, you know, we're not that unusual here. Uh, there are a lot of people like us. And those are the people who use our, who use our tools, particularly on the hobbyist side of the business. Not unusual, but very impressive is the people on your boards. So we, we, I know you've talked about a couple of them and some of the people that work there. Part of the ecosystem in Cambridge is really about all those different people that put themselves forward that become part of boards. Are there, are there anyone, you know, the team, the investors, the supporters, anyone like that that you, you want to give a bit of a highlight to that have been with you on this journey? Kind of no, because they're all great. And if I highlight one, I'm not highlighting another. Um, I mean, obviously, Sherry, Sherry Kutu has been with us for a very long time. It's all thing about a continuous service. I think probably Sherry has the gets the medal for continuous service. She was one of the founding directors of um, the trading company when we split the trading subsidiary off from the foundation at the end of 2012. She was one of the founding directors of that organisation. She was then a, a, a trustee of the foundation for six years until very recently. Uh, she's still a, a director of my business, and she's she's just been a, uh, a relentless supporter of the work that we do uh she's she's one obviously one of britain's most successful angel investors having people who have had those tough experiences i like people i've been in a bar fight with right i like people who are who i've been in a tough situation with and who've proven themselves to be level-headed and capable uh david gammon i guess would probably be another was another cambridge area name who's been with us the whole time i remember just the most terrible situation we had in the run-up to the launch of Raspberry Pi 4 where we thought for a week or two that the silicon that we commissioned and bought a lot of just didn't work. Thought we'd found a bug in it, which was a, a chip killer, possibly an organization killer. And I remember David saying to me, look, you've got to understand two things. He said, one, it's never going to be worse than it is today. It's never going to be as dark as it seems now. So don't worry, it's going to, it can only get better from where you are. And two, he said, you're about to find out who your friends are. You know, you're about to find out who, who's got your back you know, who you can rely on in a bar fight. And so some of these people who've been around the block a little bit and had these interesting, sometimes quite hard experiences, they're gems. They are the thing that differentiates Cambridge. Honestly, I think they probably differentiate Cambridge more than, say, the access to the university. I mean, people always talk about, like, why is Cambridge successful? Well, maybe it was originally successful because of the, the university and the ability to spin technology out from there. But... I think now it's those second, third, fourth, tenth generation entrepreneurs and angel investors who probably represent the, the, the key differentiating advantage that Cambridge has over, over the many other places in the world that have, have good universities generating good primary research. Yeah, I mean, it's been a fascinating conversation, but as we kind of move towards wrapping up, maybe we can just talk about the future for a second. You've talked about you know having everyone co-located in Cambridge, which is exciting for the city. So I don't know if you can give us a, an indicator of what the kind of growth plan looks like over the next couple of years. And obviously, we can't go without mentioning talk of the company going public. I don't know if you can comment on that. Um, growth plans, I think, are very much gated by the 
semiconductor shortage situation. It's hard to grow your cost structure or ill-advised to, to continue to grow your cost structure um, indefinitely uh, while you're constrained in terms of how much product you can manufacture. So I think we probably are on a bit of a pause now in terms of growth. We have continued to hire through the pandemic and through some of the crisis, um, the, the, the shortage situation. But yeah, we're probably on a bit of a pause, and I, I, I guess that will, that pause will continue. We're also slightly on a pause, of course, because we're kind of always on a pause because we're super picky about about the people we hire. We only hire people who are clever and who are not uh, bad people. If you relax either of those criteria, then you can hire a lot more people. But if you if you insist on on hiring only people who are good and clever, uh, there aren't that many of those people, and, and they're hard to find. So so we kind of well, we we continue to pick up the odd person here or there as an absolute gem walks past the door. You know, it'll be a company will have to be in a very hard way before I before I won't uh, reflexively hire a good person who walks past. But some big expansions going to have to wait a little bit. Um, uh, floating the company, I mean, we always interested in how we fund the future growth of the business whether that's funding R&D or whether that's funding changes to our balance sheet. So, um, uh, you know, we've become a much more, I mentioned we were a licensing business at the start. It was our licensees websites that we crashed in 2012. We're now much more of a direct business, what we call a direct business. So we make products and sell them for margin. That's uh, obviously a more capital intensive process and requires funding. You know, certainly we, we invest, investigate lots of options. Um, uh, for doing that, of which obviously the public markets are one. Um, the public markets are not a friendly place at the moment, and so this isn't something which is at the top of my list of things to think about. But you know, never say never. Excellent. Well, that's that's great to hear. Uh, it's been a very insightful conversation, and uh, obviously Raspberry Pi is certainly one of Cambridge's uh, jewels in the crown. So uh, congratulations to you and the team. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a wild decade. Right. I mean, it's it, it gets it's still fun. You know, I mentioned this idea of, of it seems strange to me that I spent six years preparing for Raspberry Pi, was able to sustain that. It seems stranger to me now that I've done over a decade running the running the thing. And that, and that it's still fun that I get out of bed in the morning and I'm like, hell yeah, let's go to Raspberry Pi. Um, you know, the what's the only bad thing about Raspberry Pi? The only bad thing about Raspberry Pi is how clever all the people are. Uh, so you walk in the door and you have to then try and say things to the clever people that don't make you look like an absolute imbecile. Keeps you young. I don't know. Makes your hair fall out. It either keeps you young or it ages you. One of those two. But uh, it is. It is still a fantastic place to, to to work. And and you know we're doing. You know we're making our own silicon now. You know who'd who'd have thought that? You know one of the very sad trends I think in Cambridge over the last little while. It's they call it silicon fen. But who makes silicon in Cambridge? Right. There's you know the days of Cambridge consultants spitting out a silicon startup once a year are long in our past. Um, and so to be to be in silicon fen making silicon. Uh, you know, it's that that's quite something. And it's those things that come along every few years and keep it fresh. Uh, so it's, 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 it's still fun, right? That's great. Great. Thank you very much for your time. And, and I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get you back on at some point to, to talk through all of these different updates. So there's another amazing episode in the can. I think, is it time to give ourselves a little pat on the back, Faye? I'm not sure. We've, uh, we're a few episodes in now, and um, I feel like we're starting to deliver on our promise of highlighting both startups, early stage companies, students, and and world success stories like Raspberry Pi on the show. Yeah, I think we're, we're definitely hitting our Rolodex of, of contacts and people coming to us with, with um, suggestions to be 
on the podcast. So I think that's great. And we've got some really good ones lined up as well. Tim Minchell's coming on, Andy Neely, Samsung, Flusso, you know, a whole mix of, of different people. So definitely um, there's something for everyone there. So do keep tuned in. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600.